You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. John 6, 25 through 51. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray now that you would indeed show us Christ. Our eyes are blind. Our hearts are stony. Uh, So, Father, we pray now, even in a valley where you are sometimes difficult to see, that you would show us Christ, you would show us your glory through your Son, through your Word, and by your Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. And be seated. <clears throat> it's good to see you all this evening. Some folks I haven't seen before, so I'm glad you're here. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us. We are working our way through the gospel according to John, and we are now in chapter 6. Have you ever been so hungry that even terrible food sounds amazing? Uh, yes. Uh, I'll save the details, but one of the, my top five favorite meals of my life 
happened my junior year in college when I hadn't eaten for nearly a day and it had come after an entire day of manual labor. Oh yeah, thanks, thanks. I should have told you guys that. This is a torch week, so glad for all of you fourth through sixth graders to go talk about the sermon. If you want to join Caleb and Emily Ward to do that now, that'd be great. Talk about bread and some other things. Have fun. Anyway, I'd worked for a whole day, hadn't eaten in nearly a day, uh, and some friends and I went to a little place of heaven, a little place called CeCe's Pizza. Uh, Now, CeCe's Pizza is objectively horrible, uh, but even if we had gone that day to the nicest steak restaurant in town, the funny thing about food is, is that in either case, the nicest steak restaurant or CeCe's, is a few hours after eating, we would have all been hungry again, right? This is, this is an interesting thing. No matter the quality of the food, you just get hungry again. And in our text tonight, John 6, the people have had their bellies temporarily satisfied by Jesus in the, in the first half where we went through last week, but then they get hungry again. And Jesus is going to point them and us to the spiritual realities which lie behind our natural appetites and then offer a surprising solution to our appetites. We'll see Jesus teach four different things about the reality of hunger, and we'll see these teachings come in ascending order of shock value. We'll see a provoking teaching, and then an unexpected teaching, a shocking teaching, and then a downright divisive teaching at the end of this chapter. So first of all, provoking teaching. We saw last week that in verse 4 of chapter 6, John told us that the Passover is at hand. And the Passover, as we talked about, is Uh, the framework for this entire chapter. It's not just a throwaway statement. Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 with bread and fish. And as a result of this, in verses 14 through 15, the people think that he is this Moses-like prophet that was prophesied way back in Deuteronomy 18, and now this new prophet has come back, and they are ready to make Jesus their king. And all because he gave them cc's, like some breadsticks is all he gave them. It's nothing amazing. And this 624... We read, I didn't have Michael read this paragraph for us, but in 624, the the crowd gets in boats to follow Jesus to Capernaum, and then later in the chapter, in verse 59, we found out that the crowds find him at a synagogue, uh, which is where this whole dialogue takes place. 59 tells us that this, what, what Michael just read and following, is at a synagogue, and then Jesus tells them in verses 26 through 27, truly, truly, after the crowds have found him, he says, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So right off the bat, Jesus, knowing their hearts, he tells them, look, the only reason you're here is because you want your bellies full again. The cc's was good and you want some more. Perhaps you even think that you're being really sacrificial. You've like left your jobs at home And then you've come all the way around to the other side of the sea uh, to come find me. But don't be deceived. The real reason you're here is because you just want me to make you comfortable again. You saw in me someone who could remove discomfort from your life and you came to me for more of that. You're convincing yourself that you're coming to see the power of God at work, maybe in your lives, Amongst the, amongst the people, but really you're just coming for an easy and carefree life. Your God is your belly and you are led by your appetites. He just goes right for it, right off the bat. But then he asks, seemingly in verse 27, 
But how's that going for you? The food that you eat, even the bread that I miraculously provided, it spoils, it goes bad, it perishes, and it doesn't leave you ultimately satisfied. So instead of working so hard and leaving your work and your homes behind to come find me for more of that kind of bread, the wiser thing to do would just pursue after the bread that doesn't perish, the kind of bread that doesn't go bad, the kind of bread that will leave you ultimately satisfied, the one that you don't have to keep coming back for and back for and back for. So he immediately goes after their hearts and he immediately goes after ours. And that how often do we seek a Messiah that will just give us a quick fix? Just a quick, sated appetite. But then we just want a little bit more a few hours later. We, we come for a Messiah who's like a, a, a genie who will just give us whatever we want. Maybe even feel better about some aspect of discomfort in our life, some stress in our life. Maybe we'll come to Jesus and he'll give me a little bit of peace here. We come for a Messiah who will fill our bellies and then just send us on our way. Similarly to how Jesus confronted the woman at the well in chapter 4, Jesus is confronting our never-ending quests, our never-ending little hunts for joy and satisfaction that will ultimately never satisfy. Jim Carrey, I think that's the first time he's probably ever been mentioned in this building, Uh, Jim Carrey has somewhat famously said, he said this, I said, he said, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they will know that it's not the answer. That's a deep thing that he said. He's, he's a guy like perhaps Solomon and Ecclesiastes who had everything that a human could ever want and then he was still left wanting. Since we don't have it all though, we can convince ourselves that if we just had that one thing that I'm lacking or more of the one thing that I don't have enough of, then I actually will be happy. I'm not satisfied by my job now, but perhaps a promotion will make me happy. I'm not satisfied in my marriage now. Perhaps I should just be free of it, and then I'll be happy. I'm not satisfied in the home I have, but surely 1,500 more square feet would do the trick. I'm not satisfied by weekly or nightly pornography, but surely this next time will be the one that will ultimately satisfy me. If I could just get those grades, if I could get that next hit of the drug or that next drink of the bottle, if I could get that body or that recognition, then surely I would be happy. And until then, I won't. Jesus is addressing the crowd's desire for satisfaction, specifically here in their desire for food. And while some of us need to hear this admonishment, to be careful in looking for satisfaction merely in food, all of us need to hear his admonishment to be careful in looking for satisfaction in temporary things that were never meant to satisfy. Jesus has not come to be a genie or a vending machine. He has not come to take away merely our physical discomfort. He has not come to provide, or he has come to provide something far more than we even had realized that we needed or wanted in the first place. So, Jesus says in verse 27, stop pursuing all those temporary things. Instead, pursue the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And we're not quite sure yet what he means by that. So while Jesus provokes their understanding of hunger and satisfaction, he then moves on in an unexpected way. He gives them an unexpected teaching, a solution that they weren't thinking about or seeking. So, okay, the people say, you're right. The, tem- the temporary things in our life are actually just making us hungrier and hungrier. Our, bro- our bellies are never full. So we're down for that kind of food, they seemingly say. So where do we get it? We want it. We don't want to have to keep coming to you for more bread. Where do we find it? How much will it cost us? 
Maybe we should just keep attending the synagogue, right? Uh, just obey the law more, make an annual trip to the temple, and then maybe this will be, we'll find the bread that will ultimately leave us satisfied. No. None of these works are good enough, Jesus says in verse 29. He says, this is the work of God. None of those works, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. This is all you must do. That you believe in him whom he has sent. The righteousness of God is not something that can be attained or purchased or merited on your own by working or being righteous enough. Why? Because our very lives are at odds with God. There is nothing that we can buy for ourselves that will make us righteous. Our sin is so great in our worship of things that God has given, like food, rather than the creator himself, that we can never find righteousness on our own. Satisfaction in the self or in created things is not possible. So what's the solution according to Jesus? He says, believe in the one whom he has sent. And then the crowd must be thinking, I think he just implied that he is the one that God has sent. Maybe a little blasphemous, but okay, that's cool. So they say, we trusted in Moses when he provided manna, bread from heaven, so we can trust and believe you too. But just a second, how do we know that you're like Moses? After all, Moses like kept providing manna. He provided it daily for us. You provided it once, yesterday, we're told, uh, so maybe you should do it again if you're really like Moses. What sign do you have, they ask. And now Jesus is going to lift their eyes from their gut to God. He says in verse 32, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, first of all, you should have never been trusting in Moses in the first place. He was not the redeemer. He was not the provider of the bread at all. It was God through Moses. And secondly, stop paying so much attention to the bread. This bread from heaven, yeah, it was cool. It was, it was a miraculous provision that God provided every day. He provided it daily. He was faithful in his provision. He gave you just enough so that you wouldn't need any more or less. But here's the thing about this manna. It wasn't really the bread from heaven. Manna existed in the first place to prepare your hearts for the true bread from heaven. A bread that isn't starchy or yeasty. A bread that doesn't go bad after 24 hours like the manna would. The true bread of heaven is a person. And that true bread not only feeds Israel, but it feeds the entire world. And the people here are still tracking with him. They're, they're all right. A little confusing, a little surprising, Jesus' teaching is, but they're still right there with him. So let's refresh this conversation far, so far. They, they, they think, okay, so we need to pursue this uh, heavenly food that does not spoil. Check. We're done with that. Well, what must we do to earn this bread? Nope, you can't earn it, Jesus says. You must believe in the one whom God has sent. Okay, check. We can do that. We'll believe in God's prophet whom he sends to lead his people. But how can we know that you're a prophet? How can we know that you're God's man? Can you do the signs of Moses? Which Jesus then, as we saw, never really answered, did he? But he just says, because the physical signs of Moses were there to prepare you for a greater reality, believe in the true bread. Believe in the person who comes down from heaven. Okay, check. We're right there with you. They said to him in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. Meaning, where's the person? 
Where is the person who is the true bread who has come down from heaven? Point us to him so that we might be satisfied by him always. And this gets us to Jesus' third section of teaching where Jesus is going to start raising the temperature a little bit. It's going to start getting a little warm. Beginning in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. But whoever comes to me will I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven. Do not do my own not do my own will, but the will of whom he who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. So Jesus says, you are to look for the bread, the person who has come down from heaven, and I'm the bread. This is the first of the seven so-called I am statements from John's gospel, where Jesus will take an Old Testament thing and then he will apply it to himself. Some, some monumental thing that is so important in Israel's history, and then he says, you were, you were looking at me the whole time. You thought that manna was bread from heaven that gave daily life. You thought that it was like the very contents of the storehouses of heaven that God was releasing to bless his people, but you had no idea. It was pointing to me all along. So stop looking, stop searching, stop going on these endless little joy hunts every day of your life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If indeed God has created us to be satisfied by him in the most possible way, there's nothing in the universe that could satisfy us more than him then it makes sense that we would be unsatisfied in things other and lesser than him, right? Two chapters before, Jesus told the woman at the well that he would drive away her thirst. She would never be thirsty again. But her thirst was really about sex. It was really about uh, security and her place in the world. Now, Jesus, in the same way, is going to tell the crowd that he's going to drive away their hunger. But their hunger isn't really about their growling bellies. It's about their self-worship. It's about their pursuit of comfort. And your hunger and your thirst is there to point you to the need that you have most in Christ, to remind you of your need for him. And Jesus is here to satisfy theirs and your deepest longings. The problem is, as Jesus so bluntly puts in verse 36, is that the majority of the crowd listening to Jesus sees him, they hear him, and yet they don't believe. So does that mean, in that day and today, that if we are not finding satisfaction in God through Christ alone, that he's not satisfying, that he is not doing what, he's, what his plan was all along? No, Jesus says all those that God has given to the Son will come to him. They will find rest in him. They will uh, taste him and be satisfied by him. Verse 39, he will lose nothing that the Father has given to him. And on that last day, Jesus will raise all, the Father, all that the Father has given to him. He will have this new Exodus people, this new Passover people that he has brought out of slavery, that he is leading to a new promised land. They will be trusting in him for their daily needs. They will be satisfied 
by his provision for them. They will follow him, and he will deliver them. But who is it that will follow him? Who, will, who is it that he will raise up? Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, these are the ones that will have eternal life. If you've been with us throughout all of John, another teaching about Moses that Jesus has taught should be ringing around, rattling around in the old brain there as we read through this. In chapter 3, after Jesus uh, spoke to Nicodemus about be, his, his needing to be born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus in verses 14 of chapter 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is referring to, as we talked through that day in John chapter 3, this really, really strange story from Numbers 21, where the people are just all out going into idolatry and wickedness, and then God sends these venomous snakes to plague them, to kill them. So Moses makes this bronze serpent, the symbol of the very curse, the symbol of wickedness. And as long as the people would fix their eyes, their hope in the symbol of the curse, this bronze serpent lifted up as their only hope of life, then they would live. Just as the man, as the man appointed and prepared us for Jesus, so did this bronze serpent. Moses told the people to look and live. Put your hope in the place of the curse alone and live. So Jesus finishes this sentence, or perhaps even in the midst of his teaching, and the crowd starts to grumble. He's, he's said, you need to look at me. Look at the Son of Man. And he's compared himself and he said that I am the bread. Now look at me. And the people, then, in verse 41, we find out that they begin to grumble, which is a very, very intentional word that John picks here. Uh, a word that describes the people throughout their wilderness sojourn, daily seemingly, grumbling against God's provision for them. And they grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Remember, he just said, I have come down from heaven. And they're like, wait a minute. He's the carpenter's kid from Nazareth. He didn't come down from heaven. We know it. We know his, we know his parents. He's nuts. What is he even talking about? And then interesting, interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't try to, he doesn't go off on this discourse about the virgin birth and all of these things. He again goes right after their hard hearts. While their eyes have seen the mighty works of God from Jesus, while their ears have heard his teaching with authority, they still don't believe. And he says, you just don't get it. You don't understand what I'm saying. So while this last section has certainly been shocking, he's saying that he is bread from heaven. The manna in Israel's history is actually pointing towards him, and he has come from heaven to be their satisfaction and their provision. Beginning in verse 40, 47, Jesus is going to drop the real bomb with a divisive teaching. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So 
obviously the bread that your fathers ate, it wasn't the true bread of life. They had to eat it every day. They needed it more and more. They were never satisfied. And ultimately, even though they ate it daily, they still died. It was cc's. It, it, I mean, it didn't kill you, but it might as well, right? The, the true bread of life is Jesus. But then the real divisive part, the real bomb when he says to live, you must eat the bread which is my flesh. Now, if the crowd was grumbling, right, I don't really like what he's saying. Then he says, you have to eat my flesh. Now they're screaming at each other, at him, and they're like looking for rocks to start killing this guy. The Jews disputed among themselves, verse 52, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What in the world is he talking about? But rather than like backtracking, he wasn't just like up here winging it and talking, and then he said something that was a little bit too far, and like, oh, wish I hadn't said that, try to pull that back a little bit. No, no. Then he ups the ante even more. In verse 53, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Grabbing rocks. What are you talking about? The text is really confusing for us today. Perhaps you read it earlier this week and you're like, what? And it was really confusing that day in Capernaum when he said it then too. It seems like, Jesus is saying, to have eternal life, you need to become a cannibal and a vampire. You got to start eating people and drinking their blood. But the reason that this is not only just because it's kind of weird and shocking, the reason why it's really divisive is because the Jews, with a proper understanding of the Old Testament law, would have been abhorred by what Jesus just said. If you've been tracking with our Bible reading plan or reading through Leviticus, uh, what you've been reading in the last week or two ought to be, ought to be like on the forefront of your mind. Like, what is What? The drinking of blood was specifically forbidden by the law. Eating someone's flesh is something that only the most wicked Gentile outside of God's people would even dream of doing. Not to mention the fact that even touching a dead person would make you ceremonially unclean for seven days. You'd have to cleanse yourself and leave the camp, wait a week, and then come back much less eat that person's blood or eat their flesh and drink their blood. For millennia, God's people had been conditioned to be disgusted by, to be repelled by death. And then here comes Jesus saying that that place of disgusting abhorrence, the place of uncleanness and curse is the place of eternal life. Amazing. But how? What does he mean? Does he literally mean that they're supposed to like get their forks and knives and like start cutting little pieces of his like shoulder? What are they supposed to do? And if so, what does that mean for us today on this side of his cross and his resurrection where the Lord Jesus is no longer with us physically? And explaining way back in verse 27 where Jesus said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. John Calvin explains this whole section as he says this, if food had not been mentioned, remember, the whole framework of everything that Jesus is, is describing here is within the framework of the Passover and in the framework of food, of your appetites and your bellies. So if food had not been mentioned, 
Jesus probably would have said something like, you ought to lay aside anxiety about the world and strive to obtain eternal life. Christ presents this whole sermon in metaphorical dress and gives the name of food to everything that belongs to the newness of life. So because Jesus is already preaching about food, about true bread, he metaphorically makes application about himself, about what that means. We're talking about food. I need you to think about food as if it was to be eating me. In fact, we might say that verse 54 is a metaphorical explanation of what we've already read in verse 40. Look at the two. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Compare that with verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So if this is right, then what Jesus is saying about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, what is actually required for eternal life is a deep and digesting belief in Christ. A deep and digesting belief in what Jesus has done and said. Jesus' words are important. With Jesus' bread metaphor, he could be making another Passover or wilderness reference. Remember this, when Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 8, Moses, humble, or Moses tells the people, God humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, and he might, that he might make you know that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man does not live by bread alone. Man does not just live, certainly for eternity, by having three square meals a day. Man lives alone, eternally, by the true bread of God, which is his word. He doesn't live by bread alone, but by the word of the Lord. Peter will say as much later, later in the chapter, in verse 68. You have the words of eternal life. The way that we have eternal life are your words. So Jesus not only provokes us to consider that we are unsatisfied by created things. After all, like Jim Carrey can do that. But then he offers the solution. Hearing his words, and not just the red letters that you might have in your New Testament here. But as the divine author, we hear Jesus' words from the whole of Scripture, even from Deuteronomy 8 or the Levitical law. And we eat them, ingesting, digesting, being nourished, being satisfied by them. But of course, there's a, a secondary and implied meaning of this text for we Christians on, on this side of the cross by actually eating bread, by actually drink, drinking from these cups that we will Remember in a few minutes in the Lord's Supper, we were reminded of Jesus' teaching to his disciples that the bread is his body broken for us and the wine is his blood shed for us. He has given us visceral reminders that that's true, that his body and blood has been broken and shed for us. There's a sense in which when we eat and drink that we are reminded that Jesus is actually true food that he is actually true drink. It's as if he was saying that not just at this meal, but in every meal, whether we eat or drink, we should think of the higher and spiritual reality to which this meal or this drink of water 
or Gatorade or wine or whatever it is points us. Each time we sit down to dinner, we should be reminded that we need to eat and then keep eating and then we'll do it again tomorrow night and then again tomorrow night. We need this food for nourishment. Thank you, Lord, for this meal to which uh, this food points us, points us to the bread that satisfies us always. And if that's true for every meal, how much more so with this meal, with Jesus, the true bread? So as we go out to dinner tonight, perhaps at a restaurant, perhaps at home with your families, and then certainly in this meal that we'll take together, and even, maybe not at a meal, maybe when you're falling asleep this evening at all times, but certainly when we're eating and drinking, when we eat a little bite of bread or a little thimble of juice or wine, we are reminded that these things don't satisfy, but Jesus does. When I'm falling asleep tonight, I can remind myself, preach to myself, and declare my faith in Christ that you, O Christ, satisfy me. That you are the true bread that God has provided for my life eternally. Thank you. Thank you. But we should also be careful here in making direct application from John 6 to the Lord's Supper as many throughout the centuries have. No doubt because of the amount of you uh, here with us that have grown up in this city or come from a context in which you have come from a Catholic church or you have friends or family in the Catholic church, perhaps when you heard this passage, uh, when you hear Jesus say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, you think right away about the Lord's Supper. You think right away about communion. This verse is one of the chief reasons why in Catholic theology uh, there's the, the theology of transubstantiation. That the wafer or the, the wafer in the Catholic Mass actually becomes the real and actual flesh of Christ. And that the wine becomes not wine any longer, but it uh, mystically transforms into the actual blood of Christ. Because if we draw a straight line from John 6 right away to communion, then that's the logical move, right? Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood for eternal life. Now, among a couple of textual and linguistic reasons, I can show you later if you still have questions, we should let the Lord's Supper be an implication of what Jesus teaches here in John 6, but we should be careful not to make a direct move to the Lord's Supper from John 6. Namely, that if all that Jesus requires for eternal life, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and then you'll have eternal life, if all that he requires is a ritualistic taking of regular communion, then this verse, what he just said, contradicts what he told us in verse 40. To look to the Son, to look to me, look and live. The only work that is required is verse 29, to believe in him who God has sent believe, look, this is what God requires. Now let me give you a metaphor for what that means by eating and drinking my flesh and blood. Eternal life is for those who look and believe, not those who put their faith in a daily or weekly dying of Jesus all over again for your sins. And to say that Jesus needs to have his actual body broken again, to say that he needs his actual blood to be shed again is not only not taught in John 6, but it's actually abhorrent 
and contrary to the rest of the teaching of the New Testament that so emphasizes the finished work of Christ at the cross. It's done. It is finished for you. He doesn't need to die again in the Mass. He died once and for all for your sins for eternity. And now he has risen to life and he sits now seated at the work or at the hand of the Father because his work is done. He doesn't need to die again daily or weekly. So this is the question that was posed to the disciples and to us what Clint read earlier in our call to worship from Psalm 34. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you trust me? Do you, and I think, if I'm reading this rightly, Jesus would put the air quotes around, have you eaten my flesh? Are you trusting me in such a way that you taste and see that I am good, that I am provision for you? One pastor asks, is he as real to you spiritually as something that you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people he is much less. Is that true? Often, I think if we're honest with ourselves, a hamburger is actually more useful than Jesus. I can touch it. It tastes good, and it satisfies me for a few hours. If we're honest with ourselves, I think that might be true. We don't really understand our sin for what it is before an infinitely holy and just God. We don't realize uh, ourselves at fundamentally at odds with him. Therefore, the gospel is an unbelievable eternity-shattering good news in our lives, that he has raised us from death to life. But primarily, because we have kind of a low view of God in ourselves, the gospel becomes primarily advice on how to become more wise, more mature, how to have good community, how to have better friends, how to raise good and respectable children. That's what the gospel primarily becomes in our lives. Those are good things, right? Raising good kids is a good thing. Having great community and good friends are great things. But when they become the ultimate things, the gospel of Jesus' bloody death on our behalf won't be more real than a hamburger. Jesus offers life through the deep digestion of his words, through his work. Apart from him, there's no life, there's only death. That was divisive then, and it's certainly divisive now. Certainly divided Many people then, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He says, their, their fathers, you, your, your fathers, they were grumbling over God's provision of bread in the wilderness, and now you are grumbling over God's provision of bread in the wilderness. Just as then, many today are offended by Jesus' claims and demands, and the disciples weren't wrong when they said, this is a hard saying. 
It's, it, this, is, this is difficult to not only just bite off and eat, but then to taste and swallow and digest. This is difficult. And it's true. But Jesus says, if you're offended now by what I just said, just wait. <laughs> just as the bread of life came down from heaven, verse 62, I'm going to ascend there again. But John and Jesus are using ascending in a really clever way here. We've already seen Jesus say that like the bronze serpent, that he will be lifted up. And just before this, he's talking about ascending as well. Throughout, we'll see, we've already seen and we'll continue to see through the gospel of John, this language of being lifted up and ascending. And sometimes we're never really sure on whether he's talking about ascending to heaven or being lifted up like the serpent on the cross. This is amazing. Like the bronze serpent, he will be lifted up. But he seems here to be talking about his ascending move back to heaven. But the reality is, is that he cannot ascend to heaven unless he first is lifted up on the cross. He can't ascend there before he ascends there. The place of death becomes the place of resurrection and life. And this would prove to be the most ultimate offense to the Jews. A crucified Messiah. A dead and bloody Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, lifted up as the place of God's cursing. It's counterintuitive to everything that they had thought and expected. He cannot ascend to heaven in victory over sin and death until and unless he first ascends on the cross to defeat sin and death, where Jesus stands in the place of sinners on their behalf. But he stands on their behalf only and only for those who are standing and looking at him as their only place of hope. Only for those who are eating him and drinking him, tasting and seeing that he's good, trusting him as their provision, digesting what he has said and what he has meant for them, depending on him for daily sustenance, nourishment, and life. Verse 66 tells us that many of his so-called disciples, these are those who are distinct from the 12, they were following him. They were learning from him. They were trusting him. And then what he said was so divisive and offensive, they turned back and they no longer walked with him. They were confident in their own ability to please God. They were stubborn to recognize their need and uh, their unsatisfied appetites. They were unwilling to come and dine on the word and the works of Christ they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to the place of slavery. Hey, I mean, if I remember right, the Egyptians were giving us like onions and leeks and stuff. And it was a long time ago, but I think they tasted pretty good. So I'll just head back. I'll head back. And after asking the 12 if they will leave also, Peter replies to Jesus. He says in verse 68 and 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We sang these, words, these very words, where else can we go? Where else can we go? And looking forward to this text, last Tuesday night at RGC, J.J. Johnson said that Peter's reply to Jesus, his response to Jesus' question of, are you going to leave me too? Uh, Peter's reply, that verse has been one of the most personal and reassuring verses to J.J. in the entirety of the Bible. However hard Jesus' teaching sometimes is, however long the desert sojourn seems to keep taking, however many times 
Our appetites have been tempting us to give up on Christ, to give up on this new Moses and just head back to the place of slavery. He is the Holy One of God. He is the bread of life. JJ can't leave him. That's a desperate and honest and clinging faith. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel. I will not go. I don't understand what's going on right now, but I will not go until you bless me. Give me this bread of life that I might not hunger any longer. I trust you. I want to keep feasting. I've tasted and seen that you are good, and I want to keep tasting and seeing that you are good. Without you, I'll starve. That's honest. Where else can we go? Without you, I'll starve. Would you be honest with yourself about your appetites? In genuine self-reflection, like take self-inventory on just how well things are going, how well the things out there, whatever they may be, that are promising to satisfy you, how well they're keeping their promise. He has provided himself for you to satisfy you always and give you life for eternity. So tonight at the table, tonight at dinner with your family and friends, tonight as you lie falling asleep in bed, whether for the first time or for the millionth time, would you taste and see that the Lord is good. God has provided bread for you. He has provided bread that will not spoil, that will not perish, but that will give you life for eternity through his broken body and his shed blood. This is our only hope. And without it, there is only death. Let's thank the Lord now for his provision. God, we are thankful for the first bread from heaven, for the manna that you provided your people in the wilderness. We're thankful for your faithfulness, but we're also thankful for the lesson to them that they so missed and the lesson to us now that we hope that we wouldn't miss that the, bre- that the bread that you provide is only meant to point us to the true bread that you have provided. The true bread which has come down from heaven. The true bread that has been lifted up on the cross as a place of cursing. That he might take our curse which was right and just and absorb it in himself so that we might have his life. Might we taste and see that you are good through Christ. Might we look to him and live, the place of death becoming the place of our life. Might we grow more and more. Might we feast on him daily, needing him as our sustenance. Where else can we go, Lord? We, there is nowhere else that we can go. We pray that you would hold us to yourself, that you would draw us even more to yourself, that you would satisfy us by your word and by your spirit. Without you, Lord, we would starve. We are thankful for all these things that you have done and that you are continually doing for us even now. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.